everyone, and welcome to Writers Drinking Coffee. This is a podcast where a bunch of writers sit around drinking and talking about writing, publishing, and the whole creative process. We do not censor ourselves, so consider us PG-13. Today, your hosts are Chaz Brinchley, John Schmidt, and me, Jeannie Warner. This is episode 98, an interview with David Drake. Welcome, David. Thank you, Jeannie. Uh, I'm glad to be here, and furthermore, you're here. I'm glad to <laughs> am- be with you. I am here, and I, I met David just, although it seems like last year with 2020, I'm going to have to roll it back, World Fantasy Con in LA, and he was standing just inside the doors near the bar, and somebody said, that's David Drake, and I walked up, and I, and I held there quivering in place, and then he looked at me at last, and I said, oh my God, Hummer Tanks. <laughs> so Hammer Slammers, if you're listening out there and you haven't read it, Go right out to your favorite bookstore and pick up a coffee. It's not just that hover tanks are the coolest thing ever. And I think they should turn every right-thinking female into tank girl. But it's about everything from beautiful bromances to interstellar war and politics. So, David, you have this amazing ability in all of your books, from Belisarus to Hammer Slammers. It's not just realistic imagery and language and appropriate action. You block it beautifully in your head. But you seem to think about why and how and the politics of it all. Tell us a little bit about that. I mean, there's many people that know that you served. How do you, how do you turn that, I saw it, and I'm going to put it on paper? Uh, basically, a lot of people say they write for the money or for fame. I mean, those are two very legitimate common purposes. In fact, I wrote to keep myself between the ditches after I got back to the world. I came back very angry. And uh, I needed to do something that was not going to cause real problems like get me jailed or dead or kill somebody else, which won't get me jailed. So I took up writing and I was just trying to tell the truth as I knew it. Not any, uh, you know, this wasn't a, um, a cause, you know, that I needed to do this. It was... I was just trying to take the anger out I'm in a safe, acceptable fashion. So were you, that was were you, me. Were you consciously using writing as therapy, do you think? Uh, I was not conscious of it when no. I started doing it. I became conscious afterwards. Mm-hmm. Were, the, were the Slammers the first book you wrote, or what, were the, what was your very first novel? Well... The Slammers were a short story collection, and um, that's the first point that I started writing seriously, but I was writing short stories, not novels. Yeah, it, it was, I mean, at the point my first book came out, which was Hammer Slammers, as a book, about six months before my first novel, I, uh, I had about 200,000 words in print, but it was short stories. Um, You know, there was still a short story market in the 60s and 70s, and that's when I started writing before I was drafted. And I I should probably mention also that um, I was drafted. I was not any kind of hero. Believe me, not. But uh, and it wasn't a place I wanted to be. I wanted to be back home in North Carolina and back in Duke Law School which is what McNamara drafted me out of. So um, what were you studying? Which what kind of law? I know that you became a a local district attorney. uh, No, I became um, 
town attorney. Town attorney. Which, uh, this was a civil position for the town of Chapel Hill. And um, I worked a lot on ordinances. I wrote ordinances. You know, if if they wanted to change the dog ordinance, they called me. So I changed the dog ordinance and tried to do it the way they wanted it. Or the tree ordinance. Or spent a lot of time in development meetings as developers were meeting with the town to see that they were making the right decisions as far as the town was concerned so that the town staff would recommend approval of the development. That was, you know, my purpose was in there. One of the things I learned fairly early on is that developers want short one-way streets. And <laughs> this is um, true. the town does not want short one-way streets because it's got to get emergency vehicles, particularly fire trucks, through mm-hmm. them. And um, so, that, you know, there's a, a real dichotomy between what the town wants and what the developer wants. Uh, another thing, the, uh, the town wants the developers to build the roads and um, building a road to permanent standards for, you know, fire trucks, other things, garbage trucks that may be very heavy is an expensive process. The more so, you know, it depends on what kind of dirt you're on. (laughs) Uh, But if it's adobe clay, which portions of Chapel Hill are, adobe clay has to be really removed and 18 inches of gravel put down before you start paving. Otherwise, it'll break up. And uh, it makes the houses very expensive, which developers do not like <laughs> trying so to you, sell. I was going to say, did you ever take that? As I think about roads, and then I think about, because you've written for a, a both the Byzantine period and old Roman period. Do you ever wonder if there were those same arguments over, are we going to build a road properly in, in the Roman Senate and council, as opposed um, to, look, we just want to get our troops in and be able to do things. Uh, yeah, but you want to supply them and you want to get them there fast. And believe me, if it's fucking raining uh, <laughs> and the road is breaking up, uh, that does not aid your deployment. So. Indeed. So, David, going back to the um, short stories, you, I, I also started my career with short stories, um, and I wrote widely across genres. Did you do that, or were you always focused on the science fiction fantasy end of things? I tried to write a couple of mysteries. Mm-hmm. They did not work. Oh, okay. Um, but... Um, Science fiction and fantasy were what I read, yeah, and that's basically what I focused on writing. Occasionally, try to branch out. Um, I I wrote one which was basically about Saint Patrick being kidnapped and sent to Britain, mm. or, or kidnapped from Britain and sent to Ireland by his kidnappers, but. Uh, that didn't work either, although I, I did try it on uh, some um, on a Catholic digest or something. Of the sort. Mm. I mean, I, I was I had my copy of the writer's yearbook. Yeah, I got I hit everything. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I didn't hit everything, but I tried. Yes. And the stuff that worked sold, in other mm-hmm. words, mm-hmm. Um, was um, the science fiction and fantasy. And I did a fair amount of that before I started focusing on military SF, which I did not because it's something I burningly wanted to write, but um, because that's what sold. So that's how I got typed as a military SF writer. And uh, I got really tired of the taglines, the writer of military science or mercenary science fiction, which was literally true because I certainly was being paid for it. (laughs) It was not what they meant, but. I, I don't know. I'm going to start considering myself a mercenary in everything I do. If you, if you pay me, right? You've been yeah. considering yourself a mercenary for years, Jeannie. That is true. Hey, I, I have a, a really weird tangent question, and it's it's kind of stupid. You wrote, David, in one of your blog posts or your newsletters, blog uh, one of your essays about a different kind of plotting. Uh, and I was like, okay, now we will answer the plotter versus pantser question. And you said, hmm. I need to uncouple my subconscious mind. So I like to ride a motorcycle. It gives me very good yeah. focus or translate Latin. What kind of yeah. motorcycle you, you say what Latin you translate and you even put it on your website, which is wonderful. What kind uh, of that's you like? Okay. Yeah. What kind of motorcycle though? Well, now since I've got Parkinson's and can't handle a bigger bike, um, I had been using, you know, various things, uh, GS 1150. Uh, I had a GS 1150. I love them. Okay. Oh, yeah. Wonderful. But uh, I had already switched to a DL 500, Mm -hmm. uh, the Suzuki twin. But um, I've got Parkinson's and I'm weak. So, you know, I've switched entirely to lighter bikes, Mm -hmm. uh, CB 250 or one I really love is um, Yamaha SR500 or 400. Yeah. And um, that's what I'm on now. Have you, I, just as a question, have you worked in how to bring in the motorcycle as a more effective future sci-fi through the stars tool? Is there a motorcycle equivalent of a hover tank coming <laughs> And the basics of it is, is every time when I would watch all the war movies, And the tanks went squishing through rivers and muds and things. I'd always cringe a little and like, look at all of that dirt. Because as a chick, I've had to do a lot of cleaning up of dirt. And when we were met, you were talked about, yes, because dirt gets in tank treads and it's all about particles of wear. And that's got to apply for every single technology on earth and space everywhere in war. So so what what is the elimination of dirt from the motorcycle? using it in the inner space travel here. I haven't come up with that. <laughs> I have not been tasked to do that. But I was just oh, wondering yeah. if, if you had, I know you worked with other people when you were writing Belisarus. Uh, somebody said, hey, let's do Belis- the immortal Belisarus who's just been undercover and biding his time over the centuries. What would he have as a trusty motorcycle steed to go between planets? <laughs> <laughs> Well, when I did um, basically interplanetary stuff, the the Citizen series with John Lamb said, mm-hmm. uh, basically 
that required walking or a canoe, in effect, hard physical work. That right. was that was my answer there. So sorry, nothing exotic. <laughs> <laughs> okay. There was another thing that I found from the books that I read to you that I wanted to bring up. In a lot of ways, you have all of your main characters have always as they how you bring a troop together, how you bring people is the empathy to finding common grounds and then logic. Did did you find that as something that you had in law school and you spent as an interrogator? It seems like the same basic principles. People think of them as they're the basic principles of an interrogator or a lawyer, but they really are for a general or leader too, aren't they? To find I empathy. suppose <laughs> basically the most valuable asset for uh, an interrogator is a good memory. You know, be aware of what he said before and is he changing it now? So um, I guess that's probably true for a lawyer also. Although, well, I suppose you know, that would be patterns of word there if you were going to do cross examination. But hold on, back here, you said this precisely to be able to remember their words and repeat it back to them to catch them out and say, yeah. Yeah, show me how this these two things can equally be true when you've said two different. And I suppose you yeah. catch, catch the lies better. Yeah, basically listening to the other guy and remembering what the other guy says is crucial if you want to make a useful comment about what he's saying now. Right. So what is your writing process like when you settle down and say, I've got a story in me and it's got to be told? <laughs> <What>? <laughs> I've never said that. <laughs> uh, as I say, um, I was just trying to let the pressure off mentally. You know, stuff was getting to me right. and I was behaving badly. And um, I just needed to put something down on paper. Isn't necessarily the particular thing, but, um, you know, I just, for writing a, a novel, story, whatever, um, get an idea. And, and I, do you use, do you characterize people or is characterized, or do you take some people you don't like? I mean, I, I take people that I've disliked or pissed me off and I murder them horribly in stories. Do you, <laughs> do you ever do that? Charles um, Platt. Uh, yeah, well, that was an exceptional case. Charles Platt was a chinless wonder who came to the U.S. and uh, became a reviewer for various small presses. And um, he, he didn't like Hammer Slammer, which I have no problem with. But then he said, comparing Hammer Slammers with Robert Kennedy, or sorry, <laughs> what? <laughs> Robert, <laughs> Robert Heinlein. Um, no. Well, he, he made the point that Heinlein was a military veteran, but Drake had not seen action. Um, and, you know, Heinlein wasn't, he was a military veteran, but he had never seen active service. Uh, when he tried to get back in, he, he was um, refused a security clearance when he wanted to get back in during World War II. He was um, invalided out in 1930 or thereabouts, uh, because he had tuberculosis. Good reason. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. But he had not seen action. 
And um, it wasn't my idea, but I had. And it was that lie that bothered me about Charles Platt. Not that he didn't like the book. That's his right. Right. So what did you do to Charles? Oh, (laughs) (laughs) well. You've killed him a couple times, haven't you? (laughs) Yeah. um, More, I've just used the name for a disgusting character. If you wanted, for instance, uh, a man who in an outside area is pimping out his daughters to spacemen coming by, that's Charles Platt. (laughs) Uh, He's not killed. Um, But yeah, I I have used the name for a despicable people. And I do find him despicable. But that's a question. (laughs) Yeah, but moving on from that, um, again, I'm a non sequitur. I'd like to thank you because through your writing, I rediscovered my love of Manly Wade Wellman. And as a matter of fact, oh, yeah. in preparing for this interview, I discovered that you have a story based on his earlier writings, which I was unaware of. So thank you. Now I get to go read not only your wonderful story about the Virgin of someplace in Germany, uh, but more, more Wellman. Hertogenbosch. Yeah, see, you can say it. The Wertgen Forest, Hertogenbosch. Yeah. The, you know, the Duke's Forest, but yes. Which is available, I mentioned, for anyone listening, free on your website. We'll put a link for it. Uh, it's it's wonderful to read such good writing, both knowably yours and definitely an echo of uh, Wellman's. So, thank you. Um, Manley was a very good friend. Um I knew him for the last 15 years of his life, and I really became close to him when he was laid up with, you know, basically his legs were amputated mm-hmm. bit by bit. He had bed sores, and they kept taking pieces off until he died. But it was an awful situation for him, but because I was able to get over to his house regularly and none of his other friends, acquaintances were. I spent a lot of time with him in his last 10 months. And uh, speaking as a friend of his, I can say I I wish he would have had a more prompt death, mm-hmm. but it was good for me. It was very good for me listening to him chat. Basically, he was dumping his memories on me. Mm-hmm. And uh, I I was very appreciative of that. Wonderful guy, wonderful writer as well. Yeah. As, as I say, thank you for reminding me of him. I have all of his uh, John stories, which are yeah. incredibly evocative and uh, very original because they're not derived from European myths, they're derived from American myths. All right, so one can argue derivation, but also truly scary sometimes in ways that most modern fantasy isn't to me. Yes, he uh, he was a good model for a writer as a man. He was a good writer as a he was a good model as a man. <clears throat> mm-hmm. And then, I mean, he twice turned down the opportunity to be a writer in residence, which is basically a paycheck for showing up. And um, he turned it down. He was a freelance writer, never had a lot of money ever in his life. He was unwilling in the one case. He was given a chance to be writer of a residence in Williamsburg. He didn't want to be a trained seal for Nelson Rockefeller. 
he said, who funded yeah. Williamsburg. Um, Only Williamsburg? The the recreation? Yes, yes, yes. Oh, I, I, thank you. I never knew not, yeah, Rockefeller was involved. Uh, I've, I've got I, I don't know for a fact he was, but that was what Manley believed. And I think he was right. And um, uh, that's a lot of blood money. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, so you recent you have a story coming out or that just came out. Sean Patrick Hazlitt's Weird World War Three, right? That's correct. Um, do you have any other? What are you working on right now? Is there a story in the works coming out or? Well, this is an awkward situation. <laughs> I uh, since COVID-19, basically my wife's been home all the time and I I eat very well. <laughs> but uh I'm just not able to concentrate enough to do a proper plot. I am working on a piece with a fellow named Ryan Asleben, who uh, asked me if I was willing to collaborate with him. And under normal circumstances, I, I get that sort of thing. I, I blow people off. But in this particular case, I wasn't getting any work done on my own. So I said, okay. If you got something you want me to look at it, I'll do that, and I am doing that. And um, we have all found that that being creative in the time of cholera has been it's been particularly challenging out there. So I think it helps a lot of other would be and future writers that are all focusing and saying, "My attention is everywhere, my mood is everywhere, my concentration is out the window." It's kind of comforting to hear that that happens <laughs> to everybody. <laughs> Well, it certainly happened to me, and it was nobody's fault. I mean, just realistic that I can't have the house to myself anymore, and uh, that's it. Sh I should be able to work regardless. And in earlier years, I could, but uh, I got very used to working alone in the house, and it's a wonderful house, but um, it's not a a good workplace for me anymore. Sorry. And so we are, we are love in regards to your wife. We certainly don't want to take care of that, but what would you recommend to somebody who said, okay, I'm trying to figure out my future and my voice and where do I want to write? What, what advice would you give a new writer of any age, really? Well, ideally you can work under any circumstances and they're, plenty of writers who've been able to do that. I, I did at one point, but having a separate writing area is Manly had an office over one of the downtown drugstores, and he walked up to it and walked down twice a day. And when he was unable to do that anymore, because they converted that floor of the drugstore into a dance club, okay. um, yeah, it was it was a worse plan than that. Um, there wasn't enough. There wasn't a large enough catchment area in um, Chapel Hill to keep one or in as ultimately two dance clubs going. They had very large dance clubs, and they were getting gangbangers from Durham and Greensboro, and it was actively dangerous to be downtown as a result of the town's actions. But more important to me was the fact that Manley wasn't able to 
walk every day. Well, I mean, he wasn't walking. That's the thing I will say for any writer. You've got to be disciplined in in a lot of ways. And if he'd kept on walking, as he certainly could have in his neighborhood, he started a home office, but that wasn't the same thing. And he just didn't get around much. And as a result, his legs, he, he had diabetes. His legs became pipe stems. So he got out of the car when he carried it into the garage to have it worked on. And he fell over and he broke his elbow, his elbow, left elbow. The orthopedics department at UNC was very good. They were able to put his elbow back together and he went home. And for the next three days, he sat in a easy chair with his legs up on a hassock. And um, you're, you're convincing me that, John, we're going to the gym today, right? <laughs> that That is a good plan. Uh, moving is a good plan. Yeah. When you stop moving. All right. I've got, I've got one final question. And I have to admit, I've been saving this one because it is a little bit burning. Is Major Steuben alive? <laughs> You're fangirling again. I got to know. <laughs> well, Major Steuben was in fact killed. Right. Now, whether there is a spiritual analog of him, I don't know. <laughs> I think so. But Major Steuben himself is dead. Sorry. Okay. I'm going to go cry into my biscuits now. <laughs> All right. I'm going to point you at the writing on the, the blog about Steuben and Van Seeker. But that, again, will be posted in the links. Indeed. And, we will and put- he's alive in your heart. Always. Yeah. I think... He's one of my favorite characters ever written. He truly is. So thank you for giving Joaquin to me. He is a nasty homosexual. There, he has no redeeming characteristics. Stunningly except he's loyal. Good at his job. <laughs> and he dresses well. Yeah, well. Uh, and he, he does the dirty work so the man he works for doesn't have to as much. I mean, yeah, he's yeah. kind of a, yeah, a, you may hate him, but he's a really good guy to have around. Unless you cross them. Yeah. That's probably a good, a brief problem. Yeah. For you, yeah. Yeah. For him, he may have, he may have to have his pistol cleaned, and that's always mm-hmm. a dream. That euphemism. We will put links <laughs> to the podcast, to the interesting things we mentioned on our website, which is www.ridersdrinkingcoffee.com. You can also find us on Facebook or Twitter. We answer email. David, if somebody has a question that wasn't answered by this and they reach out to me, can I send that on to you? And would you be able to answer that for them? Yes, of course. I've got a very good website. You do. And I will put links to your website and any other links you want um, with all your works on our episode. You've been listening to Writers Drinking Coffee, a labor of love and enthusiasm put together by the hosts. Our main web support magic is brought to you by Deirdre Schween, and our sound engineer and backup web spider is David Welsh. Our intro music is Pretty Made Milking a Cow, and our exit music is Breakfast with the Morning Person, both by Michael Langberg. You can hear more from Michael Langberg on manyhatsmusic.com. Our sponsors are Art, Coffee, Chocolate, Rum, and Good Red Wine. We love Jackal Designs, who's designed our upcoming 100th episode t-shirt, which will be available soon. And hey, thanks for listening out there. 